Hark, it's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedurals, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 41, Lullaby. My name is Paul Abbott, and to review this book, I'm joined by Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. And guess what? We're still doing these as remote recordings because we are currently in our second lockdown of the year. Having had a a brief window where we weren't quite in lockdown, then we were in a tiered system and now we're back in lockdown again. So, you know, (laughs) there's all sorts going on. Um, So I hope wherever you are listening to this, you're at least safe and and well. Uh, I went off to have a, a, a test as part of the citywide test system today. So if it sounds like I've got a sore throat, it's not because I've got COVID. It's because I had to rub my tonsils with a little thing and it's made me feel a bit funny. Yeah, it's not very pleasant, is it? I had mine on uh, on Saturday. It's a bit of a peculiar sensation, to say the least. Yeah. And uh, uh, you have to also stick it up your nose, which made my eyes water. So I did leave the testing centre <laughs> looking like I was really upset. <laughs> so, any road. So... Uh, as usual, you can find us on all the social things as um, Hark87Podcast, the username, or you can visit ko-fi.com slash Hark87Podcast if you want to buy us a virtual coffee. And many thanks to any of those of you who've already done that, which is very much appreciated. And if you'd like to, please leave us a rating or review wherever you're listening. That said, let us get on with the joy, sunshine and merriment that is the year 1989 and the book Lullaby. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun coming up here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, 1989 as a year, we'll get a bit of contextual stuff out of the way before we get into what McBain was up to. 1989 as a year, is, in some ways, is actually probably one of the most interesting ones that we've come to out of everything we've talked about since 1956, really. Mm. Um, I was 11 years old. You two were 10 years old. So we've, we've reached double figures for our contemporary selves back in the <laughs> back in the day not that we were reading lullaby i don't think back then <laughs> morgan might have been <laughs> well he could have been couldn't he? well can you remember what's when you first read what you considered to be an adult book if probably around 1989 actually i, I did my first adult-ish book that I, I read was definitely uh stephen king's carrie yeah and I think I probably read uh, The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty around the same time. Um, yeah. I didn't really get into crime fiction for a, until a, a good few years later, though. But uh, yeah, by, by sort of 10, 11-ish, I was avidly uh, devouring any horror I could get my mitts on. Yeah, what about you, steve God, I'm, I'm the foggiest, I can't remember. Yeah. C- certainly not that young, no, don't think so. I remember that basically I, because I read so much back then and went through all our, my books and went to the library a lot, I started reading books I'd find around at home. Mm-hmm. And I remember re- starting to read thrillers that my dad would be reading. And I remember reading Arthur Haley Overload, and I definitely cool. read that before we left Scarborough. So that's pre-1990, which is not a book that any 10, 11-year-old <laughs> should be reading, given how much sex is in it. <laughs> sex, 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 every single page, sex with every sort of person between every sort of people and then a plot about some electric company (laughs) (laughs) 
so that was quite an eye opener. Um, yeah. So, but no, no crime fiction in 1989. Probably still mainly interested in fighting fantasy game books. So. Well, yeah, that was definitely a theme for me as well at the time. I'm sure. Yeah, I've only got a couple of notes of what goes on in, in 1989 because uh, realistically, I started looking through it. And it's like, well, there's so much here, and I couldn't possibly address everything. However, I think it's worth mentioning that on the 20th of January 1989, George H. W. Bush is sworn in as the 41st president of the United States of America. Okay, yeah. And uh, not to be satirical or topical at all, but he was was he the last single-term president before Indeed. Donald J. Trump. Uh, he was indeed, indeed yeah. He was, yeah. Oh, imagine the embarrassment of that. <laughs> How terrible. Um, At least indeed, uh, he didn't whinge about it, did he? No, no, no. He was, uh, it was a little bit more uh, sensible about it. Let's say. Anyway, what else have we got? Oh, February of nineteen eighty-nine. There's a, the fatwa that goes on Salman Rushdie for the his book, The Satanic Verses, which I've never read. Um, not have I actually. I, I've read quite a bit of Rushdie, but never actually read that one. I think it was one of those things, it was such a big news story that suddenly everyone knew who Salman Rushdie was, yeah. even if you were a kid. Yeah, like the, yeah, is, is, well, is it notoriety or his fame far exceeds yeah. anybody's uh, knowledge or uh, reading of his works, I would say, certainly. Yeah, he certainly he was, because he had been, it had turned up on all of the news programmes. He was on Spitting Image and things like mm. that, that sort of satirical puppet show that's sort of come back this year. Yeah. Yeah, so everyone knew who he was. and so He was a slightly unusual-looking guy as well, wasn't he? So I suppose... Um, For first spitting image purposes, definitely. There they were, they were, they was something that they could turn into a, a caricature, wasn't there? Definitely, yeah. Mm, yeah. Someone who is now much more famous than he was at the time, though, in March of 1989... Tim Berners-Lee puts forward his proposal document for what ultimately becomes the World Wide Web, Ooh, which yeah. is allowing us to do this remotely here via the power of... that Humanity is harnessed purely for good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. That must have got going fairly quickly then, if that was 1989. You know, within 10 years it was... Essentially, yeah, yeah. yeah quite quick. I mean, it was more or less universal within 10 years of that, because... Mm. It wasn't like there wasn't computer-to-computer connections by that point, because there'd obviously been all sorts before then. Yeah. But, yeah, he set down the framework for what was actually the web rather than just computer-to-computer communication. And then the only other thing I thought I'd mention, and it is something that happened 31 years ago today. Today. That was the fall of the Berlin Wall. It certainly was. Yeah. So when you're talking about years that have something very significant in them, there's there's little I think we've had in our lifetimes quite as symbolic as the fall of the Berlin Wall, really. No. Well, we were there, I suppose, 10 years ago. Oh, of course, yeah. In the rain. God, getting really wet. Getting really hopeful of uh, the scorpions turning up. The scorpions were going to be there. No scorpions at all. Bon Jovi miming. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> we got teased with the uh, the beginning of Wind of Change, didn't we? Oh, the choir. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, yeah, it was both a high point and a low point. But yeah, yeah, that was 10 years ago, blimey. Crikey. 
Wow. So you two got that uh, very special experience of missing the scorpions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. So Gorbachev, he was there. And, uh, yeah. Like files. Yeah. Yeah. Various other uh, luminaries. Mm-hmm. I spy ex communist leaders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A few of them. Yeah. You tick them off in your little collector's guide. I think Gordon. Gordon Burns, um, <laughs> Gordon Burns was there. <laughs> Presenting a special edition Gold, of the Krypton Factor <laughs> with Lech Valenza. Yeah, can he get over the death strip without uh, the death In strip? In one of those, on those one-piece tracksuits that they yeah. must have <laughs> Yeah. No, no, Gordon Brown, sorry. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. <laughs> Uh, people who don't know uh, about the Krypton Factor and Gordon Burns will not have a clue what that was, but I can assure you it was very funny. <laughs> anyway, right. So, yeah, it's it's a big year, 1989. It's also it's quite a big year for, for Evan Hunter, Ed McBain as well. So I'll just go through, before we get onto Lullaby, what was happening in the world of McBain, because I've got quite a lot to mention here. Uh, the books that come out in 1988, a year that we've skipped, there was no new... 87th Precinct book in, in 88. But there was McBain's Ladies, the women of the 87th Precinct, the little compilation of stories based on the female characters in the books. And there was another one of those in 1989 called McBain's Ladies 2, T-double-O. I've not got either of those, so I don't know exactly what is in them. Um, I think I've got the first one. It, it is just excerpts from the from from the novels, as as far as I recall. It's, yeah. I don't think there's anything specially written for it. It's just sort of chapters that feature the the female characters. I think possibly stung by criticism of his uh, his female characters. It's it's uh, a bit of a, a sort of slap back to those 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 critics. Um, yeah. And yeah, entertaining enough, but it's not necessarily essential. No, no, I don't list them as you know within the canon of the of the books by any oh, means. I... But there are two compilations, yeah, McBain's Ladies, and it's funny actually. You mentioning that, I think you're probably right. He probably was like, do you know what? I'm get fed up of people telling me I don't write women well. Can we put something out? So yeah. they they come out. I think probably only in paperback. And the odd thing is though. His female character writing is probably getting much better from here on in. Mm. So the period he'd been looking back on, it's not his best. No. You know, but, you know, from here on in, it gets quite good. Anyway, those there's two of those. You also have a Matthew Hope novel in 1988, The House That Jack Built. We have Lullaby, obviously, in 89. And we also have the novel Downtown, which is a standalone McBain novel, which set at Christmas. I have got that on my shelf. I haven't read it yet. But that's that's the other thing that comes out in 1989. And TV adaptation-wise, on the 26th of June, 1989, should you be sitting down to watch television in Japan, mm-hmm. you could see Tanin no Kankai. I'm assuming that's how I pronounce it. This is the anglicised version of the, uh, of the Japanese name, which I believe is a, an adaptation in four 45-minute parts of Goldilocks, the first Matthew Hope novel. Ah. So we're about to get into a period where we're going to get loads more um, Japanese adaptations of, of McBain stuff. But yeah, so apparently there's like four lots of 45 minutes. That's quite a big adaptation, really. So yes, yeah. Yeah, but there's absolutely no way I'm ever going to be able to find a copy of it or know anything about <laughs> it. So, But it did happen. Outside, though, of... 
books and publishing and adaptations, 1989 is a year that Evan Hunter has his first heart attack. So we're getting into the period now where health is going to be something we're going to end up mentioning probably more often than we'd like to. Uh, How old is he in 1989? He's um, 63. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it doesn't stop him writing, you know, at any point. So he has his first heart heart attack and he has angioplasty to... uh, which is a treatment for it, isn't it? I think that's how they widen the the blood vessels. Uh, and yeah, but it is the start of illness starting to become sadly more common in his life than he, he would ever have wanted. Apparently that's when he gave up smoking. You know, yeah. he had this heart attack. and he, But I reckon he must have been trying to give up smoking because we've been talking about Maya Maya, haven't we, in these books? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And even even this one as well, talking about try to give up cigarettes by switching to cigars or giving them up completely and things like that. Clearly the heart attack was a thing that finally got him to cut down from the two packs a day that apparently he was smoking. So, and it, yeah, but even more stuff from 1989 <laughs> um, or by 1989, two things that happened in 1988, in fact, are Herb Alexander, who was his first agent at Pocket Books, Obviously, he was with an agency himself, Scott Meredith, but when he got to Pocket Books, who published the paperback of Blackboard Jungle and then ultimately published the first 87th Precinct books. So we've got Herb Alexander to to thank for commissioning Evan Hunter for those first three 87th Precinct books to try and fill the gap that they thought was going to come from, you know, the Perry Mason books from Earl Stanley Gardner. Not that Earl Stanley Gardner actually gave up writing. He kept writing for years after that. But yeah, it was it was Herb Alexander who made the connection between a manuscript that had been submitted under a pseudonym and Evan Hunter and got invited him to lunch, had the chat, said, would you like to write a series? And Hunter was went away and came up with the 87th Precinct. So, but sadly he dies in, in 1988. And someone else who dies in 1988, soldier, it's all laughter and fun and merriment, is... Hamish Hamilton himself, oh, wow. his UK publisher. Even though Jamie Hamish Hamilton, who I talked about right way back in Like Love, yeah. he'd been his uh, publisher for, since then, uh, but he hadn't been working at that publishing firm. He, he dies in 1988, and he was such a big character in, in the world of publishing. Mm. Uh, what did I get on here? There's a little note in this obituary I found. Hamilton regarded publishing as a wholly personal occupation. His flair for finding manuscripts and enthusiasm for the authors he took under his wing made it an adventure to be on his list. So I think he was a proper old school, you know, Hmm. character. Because if you remember, one of the things I mentioned when we first talked about uh, Hamish Hamilton was that he was a man supposedly of intense friendship and also intense hatred for his enemies. (laughs) (laughs) And would famously not enter a room if someone he didn't like was in there already. (laughs) So That's quite, yeah bit of a character then yeah he was uh yeah mates with raymond chandler and uh also there's i mentioned back in in light love as well he was also befriended by vince the ferocious warehouse manager with whom he went on serious drinking sprees whenever he was in london <laughs> so, every time you think a character in the books is larger than life you have to think that these are the people that these authors are mixing with yeah <laughs> with all that out of the way we can get towards lullaby Whew. Right, book 41, 
copyright 31st of January 1989, so it's coming out very early in the year anyway. It's now the first US hardback edition in William Morrow & Co., so it's a new publisher in 1989 for the American books, although the paperback stays in Avon books. This is the le- the last Hamish Hamilton release, which I think is just co- coincidental to Mr. Hamish Hamilton's death. But um, I wonder if perhaps when they were renegotiating, maybe maybe Evan Hunter didn't feel like he had a personal connection there anymore or something. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. That yeah. would make sense, yeah. It's also the last paperback to come out in Pan. So Pan, who have served us so well for so long, this is our last Pan paperback in the UK. Dear me. And within his archives, it mentions the manuscript for lullabies in there, a final original, a, ra- a rough edition, and then it has like four little stories mentioned that are sort of extracted from it. But I don't think these were ever put anywhere else, although they could have been. One's called Eggs for Breakfast. (laughs) One's called Eileen Screaming. One's called Family Dispute. And one's called Party Talk. And I think I can pin all them down to actually bits within this book. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Especially that Eggs for Breakfast one, which is um, a particular scene in the book I like quite a lot. Hmm. And... Get the dedication out of the way. It's for Julian and Dorothy Pace. I couldn't find out much information about them, except that Julian Pace appears as one of those sorts of characters in in some of the books as the Julian Pace Elementary School in the book Romance. And it's mentioned as well in Kiss later on as well. So it's another... This book is stuffed full, I'm sure, of (laughs) mates of McBain's being used for the names of things. Yeah, I think they're neighbours, do you think? Yeah, neighbours, friends. Yeah, yeah. As usual. Have you two read this before? Because this was my first time. Uh, yes, I have, yeah. I had read it before as well, yes. Okay, so can I ask you guys what your um, initial thoughts are on it? Because I, I come to it as the as the lullaby virgin this time then. Um, I think I pretty much nearly always say this, but I had virtually zero memory of this <laughs> plot. Uh, until like kind of getting towards the end and then it kind of all I remembered exactly what had, what had transpired um, but yeah when I picked it off the bookshelf again to read it I I took a brief look at the back but I, I generally don't and I just start reading um, yeah and it just kind of um, interweaved onwards and with uh, very little uh, uh, coming back into my head initially, similar to the last entry in, or maybe even the last few in terms of quite a lot going on again. I would say it's one oh, of yeah. those. He um, seems to have, for the last, whether it's quite half a dozen or so, but he seems to be a bit, bit of a, um, a run of with plots with a lot more plates spinning than he perhaps previously mm. had. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they've been my initial thoughts without going too far. What about you, Morgan? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with all that. My um, my recollection of it is sort of a bit wrapped up in my recollection of the the next two in the series just because uh, the edition I've got is uh, an, an omnibus edition of Lullaby, Vespers and Widows. Oh, right. So I, I've read initially just read straight through them all in, in one kind of fell swoop and so in my head they're, they're all kind of a bit of a piece of this sort of trilogy of, of fairly kind of 
bleak kind of quite <laughs> dark toned kind of uh, entries in the series that's kind of mainly what I'd remembered about it and uh, I, I think some dark elements in there which do bear out that memory as well hmm. In typical McBain style, if you hear that the title of the book is Lullaby, you can sort of work straight away, figure out something that's going to happen hmm. in the book, can't you? Even if you've no, no, no idea, you know it's going to have something to do with, you know, probably a baby or a child at some point. Uh, and then it's not, yeah, the term lullaby is, hasn't got quite as many possible no. other uses as, say, ice or tricks has or something like that. But he does use it a couple of times to represent different things, doesn't he? Hmm. Like, like a lullaby to mean killing someone yeah because it would have been one of the main stories in this the uh the drug story doesn't really have anything to do with lullaby does it no i think he just gives one of the characters is just says the lines yeah sing it sing him his lullaby or something yeah so, so yeah that's... it kind of applies to half of the book or two-thirds maybe yeah I've I've made one main note here, which is this story is like a Columbo episode smashed into an episode of Breaking Bad. <laughs> it's like just mashed together. Um, Columbo? Why? There's no there's no machine involved, is there? That he has to work out. We, no, there isn't. It's all about timelines, though. So I'll give you that actually, which is obviously a a big trope of Columbo, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking. There's a bit of who was where when type mm. stuff. Which quite amusingly, uh, Andy Parker puts them onto, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Like a throwaway comment. <laughs> yeah, and the one, you only really get one scene of like the whole squad together. And yeah, uh, yeah that's where Parker gets to put, you know, make a little quip about uh, sobriety or something, doesn't it? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, in the overview, clearly the story is about a dead baby, a dead babysitter on the one hand, a situation with a drugs, delivery, gangs, um, setups. That's a piece I found very complicated. And then also you've got the personal story of Eileen, who is now going to see someone in the sort of psychiatric um, therapist part of the, the police department, essentially, mm. to talk about what happened in the last book and what's happened to her in the past and her relationship with Bert Kling, which is now on a purely, you know, sort of friendship level, let's say, you know, they've moved apart. And Mm. so that's a very interesting thing that that's woven through it in there anyway. Yep. I don't know. I don't know what to say about this one. It was my first time with it and it's got at least one sequence in it that I think is one of the worst things he's put in any of his books. (laughs) which is when well no we'll get to it when we get to it but yeah essentially we start as always with a crime scene and this time it is quite you know is it's a horrible thing because it is a, a tiny baby and and a babysitter who've been killed at, at new year's eve you've got you know the usual mechanism of that kicking in and yeah oh yeah because there's a burglary as well isn't there well, that's what links the other major plot to it, yeah. So there's a, a burglary that they find out was committed on exactly the same night in the flat above or something, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, or two... Um, which the same is that, apartment it, block. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that a coincidence or is, is it not? And they don't know for quite a while. So, yeah, that's what sets them off. 
uh, with um, that plot line, isn't it? Yeah. Um, or is it actually? Is it not Bert coming across the assault, or does that happen coincidentally? That's separate. So you've got you've got Willis, who's apparently investigating this burglary in this. Oh, of course, of it's separate. Yeah, yeah. So you've got three things, haven't you? Yeah, uh, but you've yeah. Mm. So because you've got a burglary with with violence in this block of flats they're obviously going to off chasing after this person thinking he might be related to the person who's done the the murders in the block of flats they solve these crimes but yeah obviously for the actual finding out who does the murders the the chasing down the burglar it doesn't end up helping no so but it, you know it is this is the police work this is the procedural bit isn't it yeah yeah quite a lengthy kind of red herring yeah. maybe well not some red herring but but the thing that really dominates this book more than that story even, or, or those stories, is this drugs and gangs thing, which is interesting in the sense that it's it's McBain trying to reflect the changing face of the, mm. the crime in the city. We've got a sort of different makeup of, of the ethnic groups who are involved in this now, particularly the Jamaican gangs in this one and the Chinese gangs, which I'm sure reflected what was happening at the time in New York, and other cities as well, and the rise of, you know, mm. cocaine as the the major drug. But it's such a big... Intr- oh, could somebody try and explain what happens in that? Because I I was going over it again and trying to get it in my head. And It's oh. quite a, a weird structure of a book, really, because he, he, he does loads about the... Obviously, the, the, um, the homicides are committed before the book starts and so it, it kind of opens with that and then it does shift its focus doesn't it onto the drug story for the majority of the middle really and then mm. obviously with the the fairly dramatic end to all that but they're, they're fairly unusual bedfellows aren't they those two plots really mm. um, totally kind of different kind of tone if you see what I mean yeah, I can try and explain. So there's a, well, in a nutshell, so, yeah, <laughs> he, the, the, we randomly get onto this through Burke, Burke Kling, don't we, who yeah. uh, sees a man being assaulted by um, three Jamaicans with baseball bats, and he saves this guy. He ends up arresting two of them, doesn't he, or three of them maybe. Uh, ends up saving this guy who then tells him to go to hell because uh, he didn't want saving. <laughs> um, this, um, I can't remember what his name is, somebody Herrera, isn't he? he was a fairly, Jose Herrera, yeah. Yeah, it was a bit of a, <laughs> yeah, he's been around the block quite a few times, a bit of a kind of a uh, fairly slippery kind of guy, I would say, isn't he? <laughs> mm, that's fair to say. And so obviously he is then trying to kind of make Kling feel bad almost for saving him. And then he gets this idea suddenly that he can get police protection in exchange for providing details of this drugs shipment that's arriving in the docks, of which he knows fairly sketchy details. And so the, the rest of the plot involves the mechanics of this drugs deal, which you learn little bit by little bit from his narrative and the story and kind of what he's been up to and what his relationship with this Jamaican gang is. And you don't really find, you don't really 
get to the bottom of that till quite late in the book. And then you get it from the perspective of the Jamaican gang as well. And yeah. then later in the book, you get it from the perspective of the Chinese gang, because what it seems like in a, uh, simplistic terms is the Jamaicans have hired this Herrera guy as a, a pretend go-between in order to set up the Chinese <laughs> gang yeah. in order to have an excuse for legitimately coming in on their drug shipment, I think. Yeah. Something like that, isn't it? That's more or less it. It's really complicated. Yeah, well, it, I think it's so complicated because you only get a little bit of information by a little bit, and they quite spread out, and you you, you almost start forgetting what you you've mm. understood about that plot line uh, by the time you get another little bit as well. Uh, but I think that's possibly like intentional because all those three parties, uh, the Chinese gang, the Jamaican gang, and Herrera, only know a little bit of the story themselves each, don't they? And they and they mm. all they're all looking to put one all over the others, mm. uh, and therefore they don't quite know the picture. So I think, as you as a reader, are similarly a little bit in the dark. Well, a lot in the dark until, yeah. until the end when it all gets resolved in <laughs> one way. Yes, a very dramatic fashion. But of course, there's also there's also the two Chinese brothers who sort mm. of are working as hired hands for one gang or the other gang and it looks like they're double crossing or triple crossing and well i'm fairly certain by the end they they mm. end up actually successfully working for all three don't they <laughs> yeah i think so, so yeah. yeah it doesn't end well for two of those three parties should we say perhaps we shouldn't uh, ruin otherwise that's a fairly <laughs> dramatic ending it kind of doesn't matter who's going to come out on top in that they're all fairly uh, disagreeable entities aren't they yeah that's my breaking bad sort of simile simile that's not quite right comparison is is that yeah is that sort of thing. and so the police are in the dark you and the reader yes. are in the dark the three separate gangs are in the dark and it well, apart from one who susses it out towards the end. Mm. But yeah, it has quite a bit in there about the mechanics of like the 80s drug trade from uh, South America, doesn't it? And mm. Distribution through the US, which is you know would be fairly topical, very topical in those days, I would think. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, so you've got all that going on whilst you've got mm. a fair, you know, very personal family homicide running in parallel as well. And the burglary, although the burglary gets resolved. Yeah, I mean, what I was uh, interested in as well is, is, and perhaps Morgan can have, offer some thoughts on this, is McBain's use of, you know, so we know that McBain's hmm. use of dialogue is, is generally brilliant. What I'm concerned about in this book is his use of writing in the voices of these different <laughs> ethnicities. How did you find that? Uh... Yeah, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? I, I I was thinking that as I went along. It's just something that I, I can kind of forgive it a bit more when you it's happening when you're reading it in a, a novel from the fifties. By nineteen eighty nine, I, I yeah. could definitely be living without it. You know, I, I, I can I can read someone writing in Jamaican patois if they're Jamaican. Uh, if they're Ed McBain, not so much, you know. Um, and uh, indeed, like the uh, the Chinese characters uh, that he, he gives the, this sort of horribly kind of um, 
yeah, the, the, the voices he gives to them, yeah. it's 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 uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't really remember him doing it much before. It's a bit of a weird thing to suddenly start doing, isn't it? You get the odd bit of it in some of some of the early ones, but it's it's not it's not all that often. Yeah. He seems to seems to do it a lot in this particular novel for some reason. Yeah, but he also does it with like the. The German prostitutes as well. It's just like totally, ri- it's just like totally ridiculous. Yeah. But so, so, some oh, of it, it like the, the, the with the, the Chinese uh, hitmen, it's like some of those passages were b- unreadable because you, you you just can't read it without kind of saying it out loud to yourself, and then yeah. it's just absurd. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit. It was fairly daft. That yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's very strange to read. I sort of understand the idea that he's trying to get across the idea of of these gangs being so rooted in their own ethnic groups that they that they have these attitudes towards each other anyway. So you know the sort of racism between that, but it 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 you don't need to do L's and R's swapping around in Chinese speak. I I can understand maybe a little bit like the beginning when he introduces the Jamaican characters and quite not yeah. everyone might not know, you know, the the pronunciation in 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 their accent. And yeah. therefore I can understand there may be a bit of and so and so would be sound like so and so. But to you know, you could literally put that in a few words, couldn't you? And you've got your head round it. Yeah. There's really no excuse for going on like yeah. that for them, nor is there any excuse really for having to explain what a Chinese person speaking English with a heavy Chinese accent sounds like. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's like unnecessary, really. Yeah, there's, there's much better ways to handle it. Um, or what German people mm. sound like speaking with a thick German, you know, speaking English with a thick German accent. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the, the two. German characters to which you're alluding uh, feature in one is my one of my least favourite scenes that I've ever ha- read in one of the 87th Precinct books, which just seems needlessly pornographic. Yeah, it was yeah very yeah, strange. That. <laughs> it didn't really s- s- serve any purpose whatsoever, other than no, because it's my, just it's it, all that's happening is the Jamaican gang leader is talking to his deputy, let's say, and that's all it is. They're discussing something and coming to a, a conclusion that they're going to kill more people than they thought originally you're gonna to have to kill cling or something like that you don't need to do it in the middle of a, a sex party just for the sake of writing this this dirty sex party it's it, it's it's graphic and it's pornographic in a way it's... that he's rarely strays to this that level of sort of sex detail you've done it a few times before i, I think sometimes he can't help himself can he Dirty well, old, no. dirty old man. Period. I don't think. <laughs> yeah. I think it's just one of his. Uh, but yeah, more lengthy certainly in that passage than previous. Um, yeah, but having said that, then this book also contains what I reckon is I mentioned before this extracted story called Eggs for Breakfast. I reckon that's the scene where there's two burglars just talking in a um, in a mm. diner together. Oh yeah. Oh. Yeah, and yeah. that is an absolutely brilliant little scene. It's a little mini scene yeah. in an interesting setting with two characters with a certain perspective, which could have been something out of Pulp Fiction. You know, it's that yeah, sort yeah. of dialogue. Yeah, it's got that sort of Elmo Leonardy kind of uh, dialogue going on, hasn't it? It's it's great in that respect. So yeah, I really like it. Discussing cholesterol levels in eggs, yeah. <laughs> and things like that. 
So, you know, it has got some really, really good stuff in there. But yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I'll mention one or two references as well in the book that, that crop up. There's, there's a very obvious reference to the birds. Oh, yeah. There's, a, yes. there's talk about a Hall- uh, uh, Halloween. Well, oh, still days behind. A Hitchcock season where he mentions that the bird, including the birds. Yeah, couldn't resist it. <laughs> yeah. And we've also got, yeah, there's loads of names in here as well. There's, in fact, there's reference back to Roger Haviland. At one point. Don't we find out what Monroe Monaghan's first name is? Don't we find that oh. they're called Michael? Oh, is that, one of them's called Michael, yeah. And that's the only one name we ever get for for any of them. So <laughs> that's a little bit of uh, extra information. It's a shock to them themselves, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's also an interesting bit where Fat Ollie turns up and starts moaning about immigrants writing books and changing their names. <laughs> Which is yeah. the most self-referential we've had for quite some time, I think. What? Who else have we got? Yeah, there's there's two ships they're trying to track down to try and figure out who the father of this adopted baby is. And both of these ships, one's called the Roy Edwin Dean and one's called the Edward Lazarus Kalin. They're both people from Sarasota that McBain knew. <laughs> of course they are. Uh, there's a reference to a place called Bodoin Bluff which is a reference to the writer Ed Bodoin. Bodoin, I'm probably saying that terribly wrong. Sorry, Ed Bodoin. Um, yeah, there's a, also a reference to a film called Prizzy's Honour. Have you ever heard of Prizzy's Honour? Prizzy's Honour, yeah, I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever seen it, though. No, no. It's written by a guy called Richard Condon, but not Dick Condon, who was the police guy that was the friend of McBain, just to be confusing. <laughs> this is about... Uh, uh, yeah. A, a film based on a book which also features uh, the actor Robert Loggia who was the first on-screen Corella so whether that was in McBain's head or not I don't know it's uh, yeah so as usual there's there's stuff you can you can dig out of this as well for the the research purposes if if like me you're finding it quite hard to follow in any other respect (laughs) And, and I will say, Steve-O, you mentioned that there wasn't any gadgets or devices in this Columbo oh, style. Oh, there is. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, not that not, not they're involved in the um, solving of the crime, though. No. Uh, but yeah, there's a, yeah, there is a gadget. There's definitely. this thing called a, a TDD machine, which is what Teddy Carella uses to message Steve Carella when he's at work. But it's like text speak, which is amazing. <laughs> so write, writing this stuff on their little machine, which then broadcasts it through to Steve Carella's machine and, and the way they do it is, is like they use shortened versions of words and stuff and it's just like S- Steve and Teddy doing sort of cutesy text speak to each other <laughs> <laughs> so that was interesting anyway mm. yeah anyway right if we don't start wrapping this up soon we'll <laughs> uh, we'll be here forever the, the plot I described as the Columbo plot is the, is the one with the, the baby and the babysitter who's been murdered and to remain vaguely you know spoiler free that plays out a bit like a columbo or an agatha christie in a way in terms of motivation for it and it's a little bit for me a little bit disappointing how it suddenly comes to a conclusion with characters you've not really had in it before which is how i find some of those golden era detective novels sometimes Mm -hmm. a bit disappointing i found that really really far-fetched the way that they investigated that as well because like right from the outset they were fight trying to find out like the the adopted baby's parents yeah before they'd you know i mean i'm sure that in any walk of life there would be way more probability that the intended murder victim was had been the girl 
and he, he just didn't ring true that they, they kind of almost paid lip service to her I mean, half-heartedly tracking down her boyfriend who only a few months before said he was going to kill her <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and yet yeah. made massive long investigations into finding out who were few week old babies parents biological parents were and so it just seemed quite far-fetched from the outset that and got even more far-fetched <laughs> as it as it went on really but it does at least treat us to the fact that when we get to the point that we discover that someone was having an affair with this babysitter who was only 16, yep. it drives Maya Maya completely, or Maya Maya, I should say. I keep pronouncing that wrong. Maya Maya completely insane. He turns Maya Maya into this swearing maniac. <laughs> He's really annoyed with this guy. Yeah, yeah. It's a classic... Um mentioned Andy Parker before because they, they basically can't work out when there was any opportunity um, well they get on to him because, and uh, Maya Maya says well you shouldn't accept the uh, the testimony of a, a drunk basically yeah. and it gets them to think oh maybe he's right and they go back and shake him down don't they yeah and somehow luckily find someone who's overheard a phone conversation that always felt a bit like that was handy oh. wasn't it yeah yeah, and could recall it very clearly, despite the fact that it was a New Year's Eve party at some stupid time in the morning when everyone would be completely steaming. Yeah. Right, as we get towards summing up, unless there's anything we need to mention, um, we, I should say this book features the first appearance of a character we're going to see quite a lot of, which is Assistant District Attorney Nellie Brand. Oh, yeah. Oh, right, okay. Who comes in to conduct the uh, sort of Q&A and... Uh, lead lead the actual legal investigation with Corella and Maya in this one and so she will be in it for almost every book now I think until the end Fantastic. save one or two so he's, he's again he's up in the the cast of regular female characters in here as well which is a good thing I think anyway so there's that shall we have some um, contemporary reviews and then give our own summing up oh why not so Marilyn Stacio reviewed it in the New York Times in February of 1989. Nothing sloppy about his style. Even after 40 novels in this series, Mr. McBain still delivers a story without fidgeting, like someone who knows the laws on his side. True, he hasn't curbed his penchant for describing women as animals, yeah. uh, but neither does he compromise Eileen Burke in a subplot that has a detective reliving her violent rape she suffered in tricks. So overall, Marilyn's... Uh, happy with that one anyway gene hmm. m white in the washington post says the amazing thing is after 40 books spanning more than three decades and ed mcbain 87th precinct police procedural still can be exciting absorbing and surprising and then goes on to sort of give a little plot overview and f focuses in a, a bit on on cling's uh, terrible love life matthew cody in the guardian oh it's a short one this one why does Intruder kill both Babysitter and Babe? Boys from 87th Precinct explore undergrowth of ad adoption laws. One tiresome subplot centres on drug running. A second, more arresting, tracks raped woman cops, sessions with psychiatrist. Dialogue orchestration is masterly. Mm. Yeah, so that was uh, pithy. Yeah. It's perhaps not, perhaps not that wide of the mark, though. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, not unfair. No, no. John Welcome in the Irish Times... There are plenty of practitioners about in the police procedural field, but Ed McBain, who was one of the first, if in fact not the original, remains the best. It's formula writing, of course, but since he virtually invented the formula, he is entitled to persist with it, as he does to great effect in his latest instalment. So, 
Yeah. Going down well in uh, the Irish Times there. Marcel Berlin's in the Times likes it. Um, now, this is the one I was saving up for. <laughs> I mentioned this uh, on our Twitter feed a few weeks ago. John Coleman in the Sunday Times on the 28th of May, 1989, reviewed the book thus. Lullaby by Ed McBain, Hamish Hamilton, 1295. If you like formulaic stories in which cruelty features and American cops yabber at each other in the style of Hill Street Blues, this may be for you. I do. (laughs) And that's that. Sold. (laughs) I just can't imagine if that... Can you imagine that coming across the desk of Ed McBain and him reading the Hill Street Blues reference? Oh, God. It was probably what gave him the heart attack. Probably was. (laughs) Yeah. I've rarely come across one that's quite so... um, Oof. dismissive really yeah. it's by and large a uh, uh, they're very people are very positive towards this but mm. like you say i think matthew cody's review in the guardian more or less sums up my uh, feelings about it i will go to i think morgan first to come up with a score okay i mean i, I, I do agree with everything that we've said sort of against it uh, it's i think the drug plot is just fairly baffling and really convoluted <laughs> and yeah the put putting sort of these sort of weird stereotype voices in his character's mouth it just does seem 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 really weird and wrong too but there is actually quite a lot of good stuff in there too which um we shouldn't overlook i, I don't know it's it's not up to recent standards though is it i'm going to go in with a score of let me just consult kenneth i'm gonna give it 68 police shields 68 police shields and i will pass over to stephen royston yeah well yeah you know when i was looking at kenneth there before he started speaking i think i was going to be pretty much exactly the same level because when i when i finished it i thought you know what i really enjoyed that but Uh, me too like the the drugs plot seems to be needlessly complicated and lots of huffing and puffing about a plot that isn't particularly doesn't seem to have any point to it (laughs) you know you kind of finished all that and you thought so what you know (laughs) yeah the police are barely involved yeah exactly yeah yeah yeah. you know they're just not so it didn't seem to serve any purpose from an enjoyment perspective because you didn't like any of the characters and the characters that came out on top you barely knew yeah um, but you know the, the investigation into the um the double homicide was engaging and there's quite a lot of background about the city which is a common theme in the recent books so yeah i think i think i would be i think i'll go exactly the same i was thinking 68 to 70 but yeah i think it's just shy of a seven out of ten kind of effort, so right, okay. decent, but um, nothing to write to him about. I think if you could have swapped, yeah, just I don't know, yeah, just <laughs> tighten, tightened it up here and there, and you could yeah. have had an absolute corker. I think. Yeah, well, I think it's it's one thing to read this in isolation; it's another thing to have read it just after doing tricks, which yeah. was like a first time read for for me, and was like completely well. It shot to the top of the Kenneth table, didn't it? So. Yeah. It's a belter. So this, to me, felt like quite a come down. And like I say, some of the that that sequence, that sort of porn sequence, has mm. just felt really oh grotty. And <laughs> yeah, but then I mentioned some of the other stuff I liked. Some of the little set pieces. 
I'm not mad keen. And who knows if maybe when we get further into, well, the 90s, I might look back on this with different eyes, but I'm only going to give it 50 police shields at the moment because I was not massively keen. Craigie. So that gives us a Kenneth total of 62 police shields. No rounding required this time. Six out of ten, really, isn't it? Yeah, that's fair enough, I I guess. Yeah. Okie dokie. Well, Mm. with that neatly tucked into Kenneth's filing system, uh, processing away, we will... um, bring this to a close the next book that we'll be looking at is vespers from 1990 and we'll also be back with our bonus episode as well where we will discuss some more nonsense from 1989 and (laughs) the book covers and all the usual things so until then i am going to say goodbye goodbye and steve i was going to say it goodbye goodbye (laughs) and i'll leave morgan to offer his usual farewell fare thee well (laughs) 